0: Good morning. Again, welcome to Fullness. If you're joining us online, welcome. Again, great to have you. Again, graduates, congratulations. Uh, So excited, not just for this moment in your lives, but for what's coming next and what God's going to do next in your lives. It's hard for me to believe that, but our high school graduates, I think if I'm correct, um, for the entirety of their lives, 9-11 has been in the past. So if you want to feel old, there you go. Congratulations to the rest of you. Um, If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to the book of Luke again. Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be today as we're continuing a very long uh, study in Luke, coming close to an end over the next few weeks. But Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be today. And we're going to actually be in a very familiar passage, um, probably to pretty much everyone here in Luke chapter 10. And that is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan as it's commonly Known. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan is, is unique to Luke. We've been typically looking at passages that are unique to the book of Luke. Um, but actually, Samaritans really are pretty unique to Luke. Uh, Luke actually mentions Samaritans in his writings more than all the rest of the New Testament writers combined. So he's very interested in, in Samaritans and how they relate to the kingdom of God and salvation. Um, but, oh, and... Historian Tom Holland, not the actor who plays Spider-Man, but the historian, there's a, there is a historian named Tom Holland. He calls this the most influential short story in history, actually. Um, but it takes place in a larger section of Luke that, as Pastor Bart pointed out a couple weeks ago, really from the end of Luke chapter 9 to somewhere in Luke chapter 19, you have this theme of discipleship. Really, Uh, Jesus is heading on the road, on the way to Jerusalem to be crucified on a Roman cross, but along the way, there's continually these conversations, these encounters that have to do with the theme of following Jesus on the way, which is discipleship, following Jesus. And as I was thinking about it, that's really, in a sense, what, what our graduates are doing, now, I don't mean, hopefully this isn't what they think of when they think of the next step of their life, whether it's graduate school or job or college, that it's going to be crucified. Um, that's not what I mean, as, as Jesus was on the way to be crucified. But what I mean is this. They've completed one leg of their journey, and they're about to start another one, but they're following Jesus, hopefully, along the way. And that's really kind of the big idea of Today, even though we're looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're looking at a big idea of what it means to follow Jesus. And um, Jesus is, is on his journey towards Jerusalem under the earthly rule of Rome, right? He's going to be crucified on a Roman cross. And in a sense, our graduates are following him along the way in Rome, so to speak. Live in a society where you have plenty of people in places of power, whether it be maybe political, cultural, educational, who are not very sympathetic to those who would say they want to follow Jesus, but that is what they are called to do. And so what I, what I want to do here is draw out basically three principles for following Jesus, speaking specifically to our graduates, but everyone is listening in, and I'm always preaching to myself as well, but three principles about following Jesus from this passage. And first, we're going to look at really the greater um, literary unit surrounding the parable, so Luke chapter 10 as a whole, and then look at the parable itself, and then kind of zoom out and compare this passage in Luke 10 to another passage several chapters later in Luke. Hold them up side by side and see something I think is really profound and beautiful that Luke is communicating about who Jesus is. So that's kind of where we're going. First is this: we need to develop a holistic vision for following Jesus. Develop a holistic vision of following Jesus. You know, I wonder: have you ever paid attention to what is around the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Bible? I'll confess, I really hadn't before preparing for this. But as I've learned more and more over the years, that it it matters. It's important. Why the gospel writers order things the way that they do, why they put what's in front of that given passage, why they put that in front of it, why they put what's following it after it. And when you kind of do a skim over the entire chapter of Luke chapter 10, it presents this, I think, really beautiful and maybe not totally complete, but very holistic picture of what a follower, what an apprentice of Jesus looks like. So I'm just going to run quickly through the chapter. Um, So Luke 10, 1 through 16, you have Jesus sending out the 72 followers. Pastor Bart preached on that a few weeks ago. Um, Verses 17 through 20, Jesus speaks of the believer's authority over evil spirits. 21 through 24, Jesus speaks in very exclusive terms about God and about himself. 25 through 37 is where Jesus encounters this lawyer. He tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're about to look at that in a second. And then 38 through 42, the chapter ends with the familiar story of Jesus commending Mary, who puts aside distractions and is sitting at Jesus' feet, paying attention to his words. So you put all that together, and I think you get something like this, of what it means, according to Luke chapter 10, to follow Jesus. It means, one, knowing that Jesus has commissioned you to be public and not just private about your faith. Yes, it is personal and private to you, but it is a public truth that we are to speak about. Number two, it means understanding your identity, your authority as a Christian. I'm not going to go into that because Pastor Bart covered that thoroughly a couple weeks ago. Number three, being very clear in your mind about the uniqueness, the utter uniqueness of who Jesus is. Number four, loving others who are not part of your tribe. And I'll explain more about that in just a second. And number five, taking time for your spiritual formation. So we can't reduce following Jesus to just one aspect of this. And you know, I was thinking, you know, we probably have, probably everybody here can say, well, yeah, I'm really strong in some of these areas. And there's probably other areas that would be potential growth areas to get better. But, you know, graduates, you guys have all, you've completed degrees. A lot of you are going into degrees. But when you're studying something, you don't just take one class in that area and come away and say, okay, I've, I've mastered it. I've completed my knowledge in this area. I am an expert, Right? No, you're taking lots of classes in that area. You're studying different aspects of it and angles and how it relates to other different areas and how you can put it together with a larger body of knowledge. I remember I, um, I graduated um, undergrad from UAB. Go Blazers, if there's anyone else, I don't know, in here. Um, but I was a history major. And I remember over and over again, you know, as I was taking classes there, but also even in, in later classes that I took, Later on, frequently thinking, you know, the more that I learn, the more that I learn and I know, the more I realize I don't know, that this is so much bigger than what I first realized. There's so much more going on here than what I first realized. And I think that if Jesus, as the eternal Son of God made flesh, is far bigger than what we can really imagine, then shouldn't following him and being an apprentice after him cause our lives and our experience to be far bigger and holistic than what we can first imagine. So graduates, I encourage you first to seek out how you can develop a holistic picture, a holistic vision of what it means to follow Jesus. So that was really just set up, but now let's look at the actual parable. And point number two is this, follow Jesus in loving across tribal boundaries. So let's look at the parable in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, And the next day he took out two dinar and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? So you have this lawyer, an expert in the law, who comes to Jesus saying, How do I inherit eternal life? And by the way, he doesn't mean, How do I float in the clouds after I die? Um, what he means when he says that phrase eternal life is basically when the kingdom of God comes to the land, the earth of Israel, and is physically present and overthrows all other kingdoms, including Rome, how do I get to be a part of it? How am I fit to be a part of it? And like any good teacher, Jesus puts it back on him with a question, says, how do you read the law? What do you, what do you think? And the man immediately quotes two pretty well-known uh, passages, in one in Deuteronomy, one in Leviticus, so Deuteronomy 6.5, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all that you are, basically. Then Leviticus 19.18, he says, you shall, well, from here comes, um, comes the passage, love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus says, okay, you've, you've answered well, do this, and you will live. But then it says, the lawyer wanting to justify himself, he has a follow-up question. Who is my neighbor? And you know, wanting to justify himself probably doesn't mean that exactly in the way that we would think of that as, you know, as modern-day Christians. Um, you know, he's a lawyer, so he cares about precision and, and the law, right? So he wants to know, you know, am I understanding the law correctly? Because I want to be able to say, I understand this correctly, and I do this correctly, and so I can feel good about myself. And the verses that he quotes, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, have to do with really the covenant relationship of the people of God with God, right? And what it looks like to live in covenant relationship with God and with, with others. But it's important to know how rabbis, Jewish rabbis, would interpret these passages in this day and age. Most commentators would agree and point out that when a Jewish rabbi was talking about the neighbor, who is my neighbor and loving your neighbor, they took that to mean other Israelites, those who belong to ethnic national Israel, other Jews. That was your neighbor. So it excluded specifically um, foreigners and, and Samaritans. And that's how they understood that word neighbor. Now, oh, and then I almost forgot to mention, this is clearly a passage of action, too. You have the repeated word do. It's, it's clearly a passage that's talking about action in your life. But taking it back to our day and age for just a second, um, I think we all know how, how polarized and how divided society is right now, right? Um, I will frequently hear people older than me say things like, never in my lifetime have I seen things so divided, so polarized, just you know, just when you think that it can't get more intense and heated, something else seems to happen and it becomes more that way and people are just at each other's throats and um, that's just kind of the way it is right now. But that actually gives us a very clear and, and accurate lens through which to view this story in, in Luke chapter 10. Because in that day and age, first century Middle East, it would have been very polarized in society as well. Just imagine for a second, obviously they didn't have our our media and our technology yet, but I imagine then if they did, there may be some things like this going on. You might have the Roman News Network, RNN, that would talk about how terrible the Jewish people were and how they were so much lower than the Romans. Or you might have a Pharisee-inscribed Twitter account that was talking about how How really how pathetic everyone else was and how just unclean they were and how they lived and how pathetic their understanding of the law was. And maybe you might have some Samaritan podcasts that were talking about how both the Romans and the Jews were, both of them were idiots. Both of them got it wrong and they, the Samaritans, knew the real truth. And they didn't just use words against each other, they used violence. It was very polarized C.S. Lewis, um, you know, the guy that wrote Narnia, he has this really fascinating piece that I read earlier this year that is called The Inner Ring. And it was actually a, an address that he gave to uh, students. I think it actually might have been a, a graduation address. I'm not sure on that. But um, called The Inner Ring. And basically, it's this idea that he describes, this sort of this phenomenon for, for humans that we all kind of, we have this, this inner ring that we think is is highly, um, a highly valued group or ring of people that we would love to be a part of. And that could be different for different people. For some, it may be a, you know, a theological tribe or for others, maybe a political tribe or a nationalistic tribe or just a a group in society. Um, We might call it a clique, but he called it an inner ring and said that was, that was a driving force for, for many people to either be a part of it and a driving fear was to not be excluded from it. And it's really too long of something to put up here on the screen, but I've put together just a a little sampling of this address that he gave, and so I'm just gonna read a few things from it. So C.S. Lewis says, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods and in many men's lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring, and the terror of being left outside. This desire to be part of the inner ring is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. Unless you take measures to prevent it, this desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your life. From the first day in which you enter your profession until the day when you are too old to care. Of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. Dr. Martin Luther King says this, right in line with the same thing. He says, one of the great tragedies of man's long trek through history has been the limiting of neighborly concern to tribe, race, class, or nation. What are the devastating consequences of this narrow, group-centered attitude? It means that one does not really mind what happens to the people outside this group. And so it is with this setting in mind that Jesus tells this parable. And it's really a, a very straightforward parable. You have a guy traveling on the road, and he gets Stop by, by robbers. They rob him, beat him up, leave him on the side of the road, half dead. You have two uh, pretty well-respected members of conservative religious society, a, a priest and a Levite, who pass by him. Um, by the way, both of them really were not obligated by law to to avoid him. They're actually going away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, not to it. So there's nothing and the law that says well, you're not allowed to touch this, this man, they just, they pass him by. And then in the Greek, in the original, the way that, that it's worded is Samaritan is really emph- emphasized. It's really emphatic. And so it's like this almost plot twist that Jesus is, is telling. If you ever, you know, watched a movie and then all of a sudden it takes a turn that you didn't see coming. That's what Jesus is doing in this story. it's like, then a Samaritan comes on the scene and he's the hero. And probably, I would guess that most people, if not everyone here, is already pretty familiar with how Samaritans were viewed in this day and age, um, By specifically by by, by Jewish people. Um, the Samaritan would probably not have been allowed in the same part of the temple, even as the Levite and the priest, they worshiped in a different place from, from Jewish people, Um Historian Josephus actually tells this story of a group of Samaritans snuck into the temple once, hidden among Jews, and when they got in there, they threw these human bones everywhere in the temple, desecrating the temple, which to a Jewish mind was highly, highly offensive. So that gives you just a little picture of how they viewed each other, but the Samaritan is viewed as the, the hero in this story. Now, even with me saying all of that, I think we still don't get the really the shock value that Jesus is is communicating in this story. Because, you know, in our vernacular, to call someone a good Samaritan, that's not an insult. That's a compliment. But that would have been an oxymoron in in this day and age. So just to use a little bit of imagination for a second, and this is I'm just going to feed forward here. This is going to be the edgiest thing I say all morning, but please have some grace for me. Um, I imagine that if Jesus were here and telling this story now in the 21st century American South to our society, our culture, kind of down here, it may look, may sound a little bit something like this. A man is traveling on the road. He gets stopped by some some thieves. They, they stop him. They beat him up. They leave him half dead. They strip him, he's just left there, lying. And then you have a couple of members of of respected conservative society come by. A pastor walks by him, leaves him there, lying half dead on the side of the road. Then a a conservative businessman walks by, leaves him there, lying half dead on the side of a road. And then a theologically liberal democratic socialist starts passing by, stops, sees him, has compassion on him, takes him into his car, provides a ride, takes him to the place to get medical care, then pays not only for the medical care, but pays for a place for him to stay long-term and foots the whole bill himself. And then Jesus looks at the hearer and says, who was the true neighbor to him? Notice that Jesus has basically reframed the question from the lawyer's original question. The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Basically, who is worthy of being considered my neighbor? Jesus turns it around and says, basically more like, no, how do I be a true neighbor to anyone, regardless of who they are, regardless of if they fit in my inner ring, my tribe, or not? do I be a good neighbor? Are you okay? (laughs) So a more probably theologically liberal person, if they're sitting and listening right now to the last few minutes of what I just said, they may be kind of rejoicing inside, like, oh, he's made the conservatives squirm, um, which is kind of what the point is of the parable. But this is why I started out by saying we have to look at the passage as a whole, Just a few verses before this parable, the same Jesus who just told this said, no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Extremely exclusive statement to make about God and about himself. And so Jesus is very, very narrow when it comes to how we can get to God, how we can be in communion with God. And he's very, very broad in saying who true followers of him, who true members of the kingdom of his are to love. So it's not not like this false dichotomy that we choose one or the other, correct theology or correct action. No, to follow Jesus means I believe correctly about who Jesus is and I love costly with neighborly love across boundaries. That's what it means to follow Jesus. I want to say this to specifically probably our, our graduates, our young people, because I know that young people, that, you know, they'll hear stories about this, and it, it might kind of fire you up on one hand, but it also might create a lot of anxiety in you on the other hand. Like, oh my gosh, i got to go out and solve. i got to help everybody that I see. i got to solve world hunger and, and world poverty. That's really not Jesus' point here. Jesus is saying Whoever God puts in your path or to use the language of Pastor Barton will we use around fullness a lot. Whoever God puts in your sphere of influence, how can you be a neighbor to them? How can you show them costly neighborly love even if they don't fit in your tribe, in your inner ring? So follow Jesus in loving across tribal boundaries. And then lastly, point number three is this. Receive the ultimate, receive the care of the ultimate good Samaritan. <clears throat> the ultimate good Samaritan. So I just wanted for a second, let's leave Luke chapter 10. If you have a Bible, flip over just a few pages to the end of Luke chapter 18. This is also a passage that Pastor Art preached on a few weeks ago. But when we hold up these passages side by side, the parable of the Good Samaritan and this encounter that Jesus has with a blind beggar on the side of the road, I think we're gonna see something very interesting when comparing these passages together. Um, And I forgot to put them on here, so I'm just gonna read the, uh, the verse out of my Bible from Luke chapter 18. As Jesus drew near to Jericho a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So notice, in both of these stories, the account takes place on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. Now, that's going in different directions, different parts of the road, probably, but they both take place on this road between Jericho and Jerusalem. In both stories, you have someone on the side of the road who's been rendered physically helpless and been left to die. And in both stories, there's someone often misunderstood and even rejected by conservative religious society who stops unexpectedly to help the person on the side of the road and shows them mercy. I think that Luke is saying here. It's a little subtle. You kind of have to dig, but I think Luke's point here is Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who came in, moved among in among those who totally misunderstood him, totally did not get him doing life among sinners. And then it comes to those who have been beaten up and robbed and left to die by sin, both their own sin and the sin of others. And Jesus provides what it costs to see them restored and made whole again by paying the price of his own life. Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. Dan Ortland says this, describing the heart of Jesus. He says, Lowly gentleness is not one way Jesus occasionally acts towards others. Gentleness is who he is. It is his heart. And I love the the way this passage with the blind beggar ends. After Jesus has healed him, it says, Immediately he recovered his sight and did what? Followed him. Again, it's that theme of following. Glorifying God. And the people give praise and glory to God. So when you see that you are the one who's been left on the side of the road, left to die, beaten and robbed by sin, broken with no hope, and Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan who has compassion on you, who shows mercy to you, and you, that changes you, you get up and you follow Jesus and you bring glory to God. So graduates, as I close just want to encourage you again, seek to develop a holistic vision of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Don't reduce it to just one area of your life. I encourage you to follow Jesus in loving across tribal boundaries. Don't ask the question of the lawyer, who is worthy to be my neighbor, but ask the question of Jesus, how do I be a true neighbor? And then lastly, receive the care of the ultimate good Samaritan. I'm going to pray. Um, I'm going to ask Craig and the team to come up, and and, and Pastor Bart's going to come up in in just a second. Um, So, Craig, if you guys could come back up. But, Father, we thank you for who you are. I thank you specifically today for our graduates, our high school graduates, our college graduates, our seminary graduates. And I pray that they will not have heard this as just a list of things they have to do in order to earn your favor, your compassion. Because you show that to us when we have nothing to give like the man on the side of the road. But I pray that they would have a vision to see that this is the beautiful picture of what it looks like to be a follower of yours, to travel with you along the road. Thank you that you are with us and that you are with them. And I pray a blessing on them today Going forward in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Scott. What an awesome word. Amen we're going to